Welcome to PharmaTalk Radio. I'm Kate Woda. I'm pleased today to share a panel discussion from the IO360 2020 Summit led by Dr. Peter Marks, Director of CBER at the FDA, on the topic of evolution of regulatory policy for cell and gene therapy. Dr. Marks was joined by Dr. Jeff Allen of Friends of Cancer Research, Dr. Ann Chu of UPenn, and Alberto Santagostino of Lanza Pharma and Biotech. So what we'll do for this panel, I think, is I'm going to let each of the, uh, uh, each of the panelists introduce themselves, uh, say a few words about where they're from, and then I think we're going to try to talk about the regulatory environment um, and uh, the regulatory needs in this area, um, which are clearly evolving. So go ahead, Anne. Hi there. Um, I am, my name is Ann Chu. I am Executive Deputy Director at the Center for Cellular Immunotherapies at UPenn. Um, our center really operates like a mini biotech in that we're able to move um, investigational products from research all the way to GMP manufacturing into conducting uh, first in human like phase one exploratory trials, which is kind of our sweet spot in um, primary looking to um, like looking at safety of these new products, looking to de-risk targets to um, feasibility of these investiga- investigational agents. Uh, in my my role at uh, CCI, I uh, work closely with investigators to uh, translate and um, um, uh, translate and to move, um, you know, these first products and looking at regulatory development. Um, I've been fortunate enough to have been working with Carl June's team for the for the over the past decade and. Uh, being closely involved in the development of Kimraya and then also in the first U.S. Uh, CRISPR and YUSO trial that was the subject of the keynote um, presentation yesterday. Great. Uh, hi, everyone. I'm Jeff Allen, uh, President and CEO of Friends of Cancer, a D.C.-based uh, policy and advocacy organization. Um, over the last many years, um, we've worked to develop various research partnerships and policy initiatives um, to ideally uh, advance the pace of development of new therapies. Um, that includes one recently over the last probably year and a half, working with a number of stakeholders that are both on the panel and here today um, uh, on a, a, a variety of uh, hopefully near consensus-based proposals around uh, developing um, and regulating and evaluating over time uh, cell and gene therapies that hopefully can um, help uh, advance all of the progress that was presented uh, earlier today uh, more rapidly. Everybody, it's a pleasure to be here. I am Alberto Sant'Agostino. I'm leading the Cell and Gene Technologies Business Unit in Lonza. The Cell and Gene Technology Business Unit in Lonza is uh, one of the leading CDM on the, in the space. We probably are helping a great degree of the companies that are out there in going in the journey from preclinical up to commercialization. And I'd like to see us as a little bit as the highway of the CMC technical development train outsourcing for all those companies. So the philosophy is that uh, you can take care about your fundamental science, the basic biology, the clinical trials, and then on the aspect of the technical development and manufacturing, we can take care of all that aspect, making sure that we maximize the chances uh, to to get through to commercial. And I'm sure that during the debate, we can discuss about a key aspect of that from a regulatory standpoint. Thanks so much. And I'll just say that so I, 
And just so you know, a little bit of my background. So uh, I have been at FDA for the past eight years. Uh, four of them as director of the center, four of them as the previous four before that as deputy center director. Before that, I worked uh, in a combination of academic and industrial roles. So I was uh, a hematologist, oncologist practicing uh, leukemia care for a number of years and also worked at, uh, at a large pharma and at a medium-sized biotech. So um, I have a little bit of an, of, of an idea of some of the challenges here. Um, I also uh, see where the where we are coming from at, at FDA uh, uh, as a place where we really are trying to lean into uh, adapting to therapies that are very rapidly evolving. I mean, it's quite amazing. When I came to FDA uh, in 2012, CRISPR was just being, it's quite, quite amazing. So what we'll try to do is go through a series of questions here that um, where I, I don't think there's any right answer. And the good news is no one's going to offend me uh, about anything they'll ask me because you, you, uh, or, uh, or, or, or say about FDA not helping things because I get that every day. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to encourage the uh, panelists to be brutally honest. We'll just go down the line and just... Um, you know, what do you see the greatest challenge to the expeditious development of cell and gene therapies at this time? And I think, Pearl, let's just keep it, just to keep it simple, on genetically modified cell therapies like, like the CAR-Ts and the, and the modified T-cell receptors, um, just, just in terms of the, the getting through the regulatory process and, and the development process. I think um, given, given the kind of unique characteristics and um, that we've talked about today in terms of developing uh, CAR-T or, or CAR-T or TCRT cell therapies. I think one of the regulatory challenges that we face is that um, regulatory development can't keep pace with scientific innovation. So you know, the majority of the time, by the time we've put together a, a complete or comprehensive IND submission that could be put forth to the FDA, we're, 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 our products already evolved to something different. Uh, and, and thinking a little bit more in terms of how, how can we have more of an adaptive framework uh, in which to you know, innovate and, and have iterative or successive you know, product development. So looking at the uh, IND as not just a regulatory submission for a given product, but maybe a family of products um, would be helpful. Great. Thanks. Jeff? Yeah, um, yeah I think Part of it, even hearing all of the great presentations this morning, there's still a large uh, degree of um, evolving biology that I think will continue to be a challenge that maybe hasn't yet completely been uncovered that will require clinical trials that um, are, are, are daunting, um, but unfortunately necessary to try and characterize things like what will actually happen when um, you know, these therapies encounter a suppressive tum tumor microenvironment, for example. Um, that will only be, be seen um, and require some long-term follow-up and, and, and testing um, beyond just even the original clinical trials demonstrating their proof of concept and having sort of the mechanism to better understand that, I think, is a, a different sort of consideration than um, has been necessary in a lot of the drug world. Great. Thanks. Super. To give a context to, my, to the answer of my question, I want to give uh, one state of facts, and I want you to take a first point is that uh, there is a paradigm shift about what was in chemical drugs, but also what was biological drugs in what is in reality cell engine technologies, especially if we think autologous and modified cell therapy. 
if you think uh, uh, some chemical drugs you make in cardiovascular, you may have thousands of patients and maybe one, two, three, five, six batches of chemicals produced to treat those patients. If you go in a clinical trial for cell therapy, you don't do thousands of patients and you have 100 batches. So you have two order of magnitude less complexity on a clinical uh, side in terms of managing patients, but twice as much the complexity or 10, 100 times more the complexity from a manufacturing side. With all the technical complexity of developing a process that then get locked in very early, and many of those processes are coming out from a university setup, and therefore, Unfortunately, I have to say, most of those processes are very unstable and non-manufacturable, with failure rate that you have seen also from major corporate are unacceptably high at the commercial standard. So if you embrace this, then you also are embracing the fact that do exist and we can refer to has been thought to those models that are thought as stockpiling batch production. Now you are in a setup in which you are time-bound one patient, one batch set up. And therefore, here comes the regulatory complexity that I very much embrace the adaptive concept because there is the need of uh, a little bit embrace what are the standards that are de facto em emerging in the industry and also kind of uh, being rapid into providing a guidance on the important things that guidance want to be provided on. And then the, my final fourth point is that never as in this period so close both to the industry and to the small company developing science in being very leaning forward with accelerated pathway and then really fostering patients having their treatment as early as possible. This obviously creates a bit of a distress and compression on the manufacturing side and therefore having a good way to allow me dance tango together in terms of regulatory framework development becomes extremely critical so that we ensure safety as much as speed of development of those therapies. Yeah, thanks. So it seems like what we're talking about, just to, to zero in a little bit more, is this, this fact that the regulatory framework that we have isn't, isn't perfectly meshing with, with the cycle times of development. If we want to, it doesn't perfectly mesh, as, or it, it, on the surface, it doesn't mesh with this idea of decentralized manufacturing um, uh, as well. So uh, what, are, what are thoughts of what, but I, I think you're, you, you have this idea of some things that we might do to, to have uh, better concordance with the regulatory framework and, uh, and moving ahead these therapies? So I, I think um, Jeff alluded to this a little bit in terms of um, the, the white paper that um, you guys, uh, between uh, Friends of Cancer Research and Parker Institute, uh, put together in uh, this whole concept of parent-child, you know, IND development. Um, and it's something that we've actually tried to put forth you know, to the FDA. Um, we've proposed in, in terms of a, um, a, a, a CRISPR-edited allogeneic um, CAR T-cell program. And in the submission that we submitted to the FDA in the fall, we proposed that um, we defined uh, what this you know, parent product would be very broadly in the sense that it's a class of product um, and, and B-cell malignancy. And then we, we defined um, the parent-child being a particular uh, CAR T-cell against a particular antigen. And then we provided in the, in the investigational um, uh, schema an outline of how we think future de developments with additional children. And then we went so far as to even define potential grandchildren <laughs> um, uh, and, and trying, trying to seek you know, some clarity um, you know, from the FDA. 
Um, but I, I think you know some of the preliminary comments that we've gotten back at is that they still want to see this standard successive one IND and then another and then another. So I, I think there's some more dialogue that needs to happen you know, around that. I think, yeah, it, I think just to just to give people an idea, not to speak about any specific application. One of the issues that when you see hundreds of of, of different products, we get to see what what you see in 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 the world is what when people fail and they fail big, you get to see them. When they fail, not so big, but still, it's a failure. We get to see them, and we see the whole breadth of this, and it, it makes some of our reviewers take pause at some of these because. One of the issues is, 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 was already alluded to, the science is moving so quickly, and some of it we still don't understand. It would be easier if we understood sometimes why someone, one particular construct where it looks for all the world very, very struck, but a couple things are changed, very, maybe just a couple nucleic acids in a linker region, and suddenly you have something that went from causing no uh, neurotoxicity syndromes to an incredible amount of neurotoxicity or very little CRS to a, a lot of CRS. So it, it becomes really, I mean, there's that piece of it that I think it, it's, it gives people a little bit of the heebie-jeebies in the in the reviewers, um, because ultimately um, their their goal is on patient safety. That being said, um, one of the things that that just to try to address this, we're, we're increasingly thinking about, and I think it's because we realize that it's it's challenging, is, is whether there are ways, even if we are going to require incremental work, that we could really streamline what we get in the incremental a applications. Like, okay, it, go, it may be that an intermediate step of the parent-child where you, you, you know who your grandchild um, uh, will be to uh, essentially give birth to a child first, and then once... <laughs> once it grows up, to then have grandchildren. The idea being, but, but in this case, you wouldn't have to actually submit the whole package. You just submit what's new. In other words, if you had a different CRISPR construct, you just submit what you needed to about the guide and any specific off-target studies with the guide. So that's at least where we're headed. And, and for anyone who's interested in tuning into a webinar on March 3rd, we actually are having an individualized therapy uh, workshop, which will be webcast, uh, where this will be one of the issues that, that will be talked about. Because we realize we're not in the right... We, we, I, I don't want to say the right or wrong. We realize that we are not in... Uh, as advanced a state as we'd like to be in terms of dealing with some of these individualized products. Yeah, and I just wanted to add on to that, that with the approach that we came back, you know, after getting this initial feedback that, you know, the agency wasn't really saying no, they, they were pretty much saying to us, we don't have enough information yet, right? because I think the agency is very, you know, big on, you know, show me the, show me the data first and then let me make an informed decision. So we were, we were essentially going to be doing that, like we're going to submit a second child with those particular modules. Um, that shows the differentiation or the similarities, right? So what's common and then what's the difference you weigh in again? Yeah. Yeah, it just, it, it is. I mean, the, the issue is that this is becoming, uh, we're going from an age of, uh, of, of personalized therapy. You know, personalized medicines, when you, when you had medicines on the shelf that were approved and you tested biomarkers and you picked ones to treat people with, moving to an era where you're going to figure out what's wrong with someone's genome and then want to address it with a manufactured product, 
the, the, the breaks down. Uh, we just so we do have to find ways to um, make something work where where we will be making a lot of individualized or customized products. Some will be more like customized products because there'll be perhaps a T cell manufacturing process where there'll be some change to a receptor uh, that may, might be modest, uh, could be like the, the, the T-cell therapies. In other cases, there'll be more really created products where it'll be really, there'll be a different, different products where they might almost have different indications. But either way, um, I think we have to find a way to deal with very small populations of patients because... I mean, if you, it, it, I thought it was great, beautiful work presented earlier that you couldn't find two tumors that have the same, you know, like, what was it, two, two different, you know, you could find two identical um, uh, antigens to go after, but mostly when, with 100 tumors, you're getting 100 different sets of, uh, of antigens to go after. And so it is a matter of trying to, for the agency's perspective, it's a way of trying to find a comfort zone that when, if we go down a route, uh, we're not going to lead to... Uh, uh, excessive patient harm. And, and just so you know, the reason why I say excessive patient harm is because we've been criticized very, you know, uh, uh, very, very uh, vocally by some by saying, look, you know, we're dying anyway. Why are you saying that the things have to be safe? So unfortunately, I, I find it troubling, a dirty word, but um, I, 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 I kid you not, um, uh, you know, it was thrown in my face as, as if as, I, I could have been using a four-letter word to someone when I said the word safety. And uh, it used to be that that was a, a calming, pleasant word. Um, but we get it that if people have serious diseases, they're willing to take a certain amount of risk. Our, our, our challenge is finding calculated risk. Um, you know, where, where do we, when, you, when we think about things, I, I, if you would have, three years ago, four years ago, if I would have been sitting here, maybe four years ago, I would have had no idea that someone was going to make six edits to a, a T-cell to try to make an, uh, an, 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 an allo T-cell that could be uh, broadly applicable. But where, where do we think things are going to go, and, and, and do we see more regulatory adaptation that's going to be... Uh, needed and and the next question after this is I'm going to get to the decentralized central and the the audience can have more of that debate. <laughs> but go ahead. So so where do we think things are? I mean, do we think that we're going to have another quantum leap? Um, I I think you know with the uh, all the modern uh, gene editing toolkits that you know, are, are coming into play. Um, I, you know, even with you know, CRISPR you know, talons and um, even now like looking at single base editing, you know, different ways to um, deliver uh, gene editing cargo into the cells you know, besides electroporation, you know, other, other like um, uh, nanoparticles or, or lipids, uh, you know, um, uh, particles to delivering um, uh, these editing machinery in, into cells. There's, going to be a lot more kind of regulatory kind of thinking around these. And, and one of the things that we struggle with is, you know, often these are reagents that are, are kind of in the research sphere, right? They're, they haven't made it into, like, you know, GMP grade yet. Yet we're, we're trying to um, um, introduce them into our, our process. And, um, you know, so we've gotten comments even with our, um, you know, um, uh, initial uh, IND submission in, in terms of having hold issues around getting um, specifications or, or um, better um, characteristics that are catalog products. So how, how do we get access to that information when, you know, some of these um, uh, 
you know, uh, biotech um, manufacturers of these reagents um, that are necessary to kind of move the field forward. Like they haven't uh, provided a, a regulatory dossier. Um, so like we're not in control of these, you know, reagents like or starting materials, but like how, how do we think about that? I, like I, I struggle with some of that. Yeah, we struggle with Great, this is great uh, segue, great, go ahead. Yeah. So I think that um, the main uh, innovation that will happen is definitely to close the system. Doesn't matter if we mean it as uh, equipment in a room or if we really think about isolators. So some development of uh, thinking a regulatory framework there can help a lot, especially in terms of, as we all have this agenda, decreasing the cost of manufacturing, grading of the room, condition for considering closed system closed, and uh, what the way of operating those things. So this is something that is going to come at us. It's one of the biggest opportunities to decrease cost. So having a joint idea about how to frame this is important. The other aspect uh, is going to be critical in my eyes is a system, especially for ex vivo cell therapy, gene therapy. And this is going to come. Electroporation, mechanoporation, or other systems are going to be there, going to be a technical leap forward that are going to make life much easier. Framing the way to go for it is going to be good. Then I would say novel genetic editing tool. There is not only CRISPR out there. Uh, some other, some system might even become more precise. So having an idea what we are seeking for, what better looks like in terms of not which editing system is better, but what do we expect from an editing system can cast a lot of clarity about what to choose. Because at the end, it's becoming almost a manufacturing tool. And the last point, I would say becoming very comfortable with CAR-Ts and what that means, and we start have a very clear way of manufacturing or developing and even regulating that system, but there is a new wealth of modality that is coming toward us. I'm thinking, for instance, IPSCs is one of the things that will become pretty, pretty relevant. How do we capture them and keep them segregated, or what would make us comfortable to release it in a living organism? Or exosomes is going to be the next one. So those would be the technologies watch out I would have so that maybe we can collaboratively work together to know what good looks like in terms of both developing and manufacturing setup. I think it's um, you know it's, it's obviously very exciting um, to talk about the innovations and discovery and the subsequent innovations and regulation that needs to to, to happen um, to foster that. But I think there also needs to be a fair amount of attention on uh, innovation around things like data sharing um, and collaboration and innovations and post-market surveillance in order to accompany that as well, to get to some of the things that have been described here. It, it may require different um, models for sharing of information or to be able to identify those types of modifications that result in a significant change and maybe even just take a few off the table um, in order to allow for the flexibility that has been here um, in terms of the pre-market side, but also on the on the post-market side, you know, a couple of the presentations today um, mentioned things like uh, the challenge to uh, for long-term follow-up with with individual patients. So there needs to be some attention to the the types of um, uh, long-term interactions and requirements that that um, you know that the the recipients of these therapies um, are um, are subject to, are willing to be a part of, um, and what that needs to look like in order to. Well, no, thanks for that, Jeff. And just, just to back up to something that Anne said, I think one of the things that we've heard, and actually we heard it at, at one of the Friends of Cancer Research uh, meetings, was this issue of, of 
of things that go in. It's particularly difficult for academics. Products that they use, be they media, supplements, um, reagents that are not basically they're black boxes um, and they submit them to the agency unfortunately without a uh, without a lot of stuff behind them and then we end up in this odd space and this has brought up this issue of do we need does there need to be more collaboration exchange so that we end up with with a a set of products that we at the agency know what they are and, and and the problem is when we get we get the black box we don't know you know the certificate of analysis to us often just it, it doesn't mean a lot um, as opposed to actually knowing what something uh, real about the product so I think it's it's really something that we struggle with um, and whether there's some uh, public private partnership or other uh, manufacturing organization that could help come up with a solution to that uh, might be really helpful because we, we, we repeatedly in real struggles um, um, the other problem with that is that some of these products are in, made by one manufacturer or two, and they go offline, and suddenly somebody then has to s- totally switch out to another process so that's that 's a challenge. Um, the, the issues, the issues with with some of the manufacturing issues are, I think, are are really uh, there again. Our, our regulations are trying to, to to deal with this, and the reason why I wanted to come back to the debate about centralized versus um, uh, versus local, um, it, it's really quite interesting because if you look at next to the U.S., where's the biggest place where 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 CAR T cells are being studied? It's China. And they are nice to know that across the globe, someone's having the same debate of centralized versus um, uh, uh, disseminated manufacturing. I don't know that the, um, the jury's out there. They, I can tell you from a regulatory perspective, the problem that they have had occasionally with the, um, the local manufacturing process is that they have gotten into some problems with people doing things that... Um, would probably have been uh, stopped had there been uh, central oversight of things. Um, uh, someone had the bright idea of using an AAV vector to deliver the car. Um, you probably don't want to do that because the um, that spill over, you're going to sensitize them and you're not going to be able to... And, and it's even worse, if, if they have already antibodies to that AAV, you might just clear the cells and, and indeed uh, they've had some interesting things like that. So th- those, those are the kinds of things we worry about um, but that's not to say that you couldn't have a decentralized process that works. And, and one, for us, the p- piece that we struggle with is how would you do it? Well, one, one thought is that if you had a, just as an idea, because we actually have thought about this, go figure, um, uh, this, this concept that you could have a company that just puts its machines, you know, you have the machines in different locations just for convenience sake, the companies, the reagents, the, the vectors that are needed, and ultimately, I, again, I agree with Alberta that what will happen uh, is that once you come to non-viral vector technologies, um, we'll probably have Coke machine-like things that are going to be making CAR T cells. Um, but um, uh, th- this concept is that the, you have the, the company that has oversight, and yes, the manufacturing is done locally by qualified people that the, the company supervises, uh, uniform products being made, and yet it gives you that uh, ability to have fresh product uh, made with the benefits on a local basis. You don't have to have a large 
uh, footprint uh, uh, central manufacturing facility. It does mean that you have to go through the extra efforts of coordination. That, I think, is very different than the thing we do struggle with, which is the idea that you have a bunch of people who get together and say, we're going to make some things at our local area, and yeah, we'll have a loose affiliation, and we don't really know that we're absolutely making the same product, and we don't really know that we're, we have the same uh, rigorous quality. Um, the other thing which is really interesting is we've had some confederations of academic institutions that have wanted to develop CAR T-cells. And the ultimate problem is when you start to talk to them about what it would be like to take those through to licensure, it's not actually getting them to licensure that's the problem. Because uh, Scott Gottlieb, uh, who was mentioned earlier today, and uh, we, we, put, we put, to get, put out a paper in New England Journal about how you can do a collaborative manufacturing process. That's not the problem. The problem they actually get into is the dean and the university. They don't want to take the uh, risk associated with having being the manufacturer of medical product and liability issues. So these are really, it, it's interesting how these things come down. So at least at this point, the, uh, the, the simplest path, I think, to distributed manufacturing is probably through machines that are a company that has uh, that machines distributed because that also from our regulatory perspective, it's very simple. You have one license holder, and they have various associated manufacturing sites. So there is a, I just want to say, there is a solution. It isn't, it isn't like a, it, 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 it's different than having a confederation, um, uh, but, um, uh, you know, some might call it a dictatorship, but it, it doesn't matter. It actually can work. Um, so, I mean, I think that's the, the, the issues, the issues there um, that we see. Um, in terms of, Alberta, do you see things in terms of regulatory? What, what, what would you say from the manufacturing perspective is the greatest regulatory at this point? Yeah. Oh, thank you much. So first of all, I need to uh, say something uh, that is extremely important. So from a regulatory relationship, Type C meetings and many other ways to communicate with FDA are extremely helpful. So despite what is a regulatory framework formalized and issued, as a manufacturer, but I think you as a company should always think that having a dialogue is better than assuming things on your own. So beside what uh, FDA can do more, regulator can do more, always consider the option of collaborating and partnering. And that to me is the essence. Then if you really push me to say what can be done topics, I think that maybe the area where we can push a regulation or definition or standard that for me is the same, that could help more broadly the industry, is very much on the raw materials. Often raw materials comes at us that are not sterilizable. They cannot be HVAC, they cannot be gamma radiated. They are university grade or lab grade, which doesn't really lend themselves to an industrialization process. We do a great degree of work on process development to try to switch in and switch out the raw material with more appropriate one, but it's a big effort. If we would get toward the definition of what good raw material could look like, probably we will address cost, risk, sterility, and a big degree. The, that again, for the ease of scale out and serving more patient and industrial housing in a good way, we probably may consider what an easy and good framework for scaling out uh, what is the manufacturing in one clean room to multiple clean room can probably allow us to have a faster response to variable market demand. And so it's not that this doesn't exist, but having a, a better frame about how do we scale out could, could help. The third point, I think, again, 
uh, in the spirit of benefiting everyone, uh, what comes at us is that there is a, a vast degree of uh, um, release uh, criteria and a vast criteria and a vast degree of comparability criteria. Uh, all of those are scientifically based. Every company has had a good reasoning across them. But practically, in a way, some companies are starting with a foot of disadvantage because they are overly thorough. Sometimes they set themselves a narrow specification to a point that makes no clinical sense, no manufacturing sense in terms of critical process parameters, but they set themselves up for something that is not achievable. So having sort of defined criteria for release, comparability, and characterization probably would help to guide companies that might not have the expertise on the parameter that really matter for safety or efficacy in a way that then delivers a better degree of competition of companies more on the base science. And that, I think, could take a leapfrog for the industry in improving the general thing. But at least from my personal experience, whenever you have a doubt, just start a dialogue with FDA. They've never been short in being helpful. So uh, I kind of think Alberto like, stole some of my script because two, I, I echo two of those um, points, um, the one being um, uh, you know, the raw materials. Um, I, I think that we need to move towards a greater acceptance, particularly in the phase one trial of these highly documented, but highly documented um, grades of materials, particularly for academic institutions in which we sometimes it's cost prohibitive to you know, purchase these um, you know, commercial reagents and so much of it we can like develop internally, like you know the plasmids or the lentiviral vectors. And um, so how much of that really needs to happen in a particular clean room if we set you know, very controlled um, you know, conditions under um, quality management, robust SOPs, and then we, we test them accordingly? Um, can we move towards that being more the standard as the, rather than the exception um, in these early phase trials? And another thing that we struggle with is how do we lease tests versus um, uh, assays that we're doing just for information only, right? Particularly as we're sometimes, you know, we know we're being it, like defining specifications are very arbitrary when we don't really understand the biology. So, um, like, how, how do we, you know, think about like what's necessary prior to infusion as, as opposed to what are the assays that we're generating just a data set? You know, to put forth to the FDA, but that can happen like post-infusion, particularly if we have some SOP in um, following up in the event. You know, something um, you know doesn't meet spec. up on, I want to pick up on, 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 on something about just the, the issue of the materials is well taken, and I think that's something that we have to. We're contemplating how we deal with that. I think it's, it's something we struggle with, again, because we don't want to cause harm, but we do understand that this is a real challenge, especially in academic centers. Um, I do think that one of the things, that the two things I want to talk about for a moment are innovation and, and the meetings. One is this issue that, to date, one of the real ch challenges has been in, in, this, in this area has 
exchange of information, both in the manufacturing side and actually post-marketing. Um, uh, uh, the, the issue in the manufacturing end is that it's very hard to know what the true critical quality attributes are um, for some of these products because everyone keeps their cards close to their chest um, and there has not been uh, extensive sharing. P people look at different things in order to characterize their, their cells. And, and it becomes the manufacturing process itself becomes this secretive uh, IP that, that where there's a lot of value around. And I think again, exactly as Alberto said, the, what we really want is the science that's being done. That's the construct. You know, what are you doing uh, here to, to matter more? So I think hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll be able to evolve to a place where there can be more sharing. On, on the flip side, it would be really nice to have more, uh, really more robust, um, uh, essentially post-marketing data. I think people worry about that a little bit because they're worried, what if my car 19 is not quite as good as the other guy's car 19? And what if, because the, the problem is large database work. Um, I, 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 I saw some from, someone from IQVIA in the back. Large databases can do a lot in this area, including, in some cases, help you figure out not just safety, but also efficacy issues. I think we're going to have to come to grips with that. Um, the, the other issue I, I wanted to say is one which is, is, is I really greatly appreciate everyone's mention of, of meetings with FDA. They, we really do believe they're incredibly helpful. I have to apologize for the fact that at the moment it, we are not meeting what I would like to say our, our timeliness for these meetings, and that's because we have had an avalanche of applications and uh, an avalanche of people queuing up. With I, it was the like the 2019 figure was at like nine billion dollars in venture money into this area, on top of established manufacturers. Um, we have queues of people, and our staff in this area over so over <laughs> this is this is pretty pretty amazing. Over five years, we are up over 300 percent in the number of meetings we have, and and that's the ones we could have. We if we were actually granting the ones we would like to, we would probably be up 500%. The number of staff that we have that are granting these meetings is up 15%. So you can see there's a little problem there um, in, in where we're trying to go. So we are in the process of trying to get uh, that rectified. Um, and so you may see, you may see noise um, as, we, uh, as we come to various funding cycles of, of people trying to say, it is an incredibly exciting area, um, and we owe it to patients to be able to, to, to provide the advice that we need to. But that has been a, that has been a challenge, and, and I, I, I know people, people come up to me and are, are, they are mad about that. Um, you know, let, we, why don't we do this? Um, any last words, and then we'll open up for questions. Okay, I just want to pick on the centralized and decentralized because this was also another topic. Just throw in my two cents. I think that the very first question is, uh, is this a medical product or pharmaceutical or is a medical procedure? Obviously, in the Western world, it's quite clear. In some other countries in the world, it's an open. If it is a medical procedure, this open up to less of a need of standardization and more variety of interpretation, but also kind of opens up to a more variety of outcome and questionable results. So if we stick with the pharmaceutical product framing, then there is almost no, no doubt around the fact that centralized is going to drive better quality 
and eventually also decrease costs in the context of high intensity of human labor. And I even more thinking so about the quality release and the quality testing even more than the manufacturing. And so if we are going for a medical, pharmaceutical, sorry, uh, aspect, probably centralized is going to stay there. We fundamentally provide the Coke machine in which you plug in the blood and you get out the product. And at that point, we need to move from a framework in which we don't anymore inspect and qualify the site that much, but more we kind of inspect and qualify a defined concept that doesn't matter where we install it. And this is a little bit the same philosophy that I'm driving in the company. So now self-disclosure, it's obviously the loans is invested in this area too. And then it's the philosophy of the cocoon that we are developing that is a completely self-standing and automatized machine, which haven't yet completely solved all the aspects, but is going in this direction. But once again, despite you are busy, normally you give good answers. So <laughs> sorry, you have it. Well, the only th this, this, all, this all sounds nice and exciting, but it reminds me of a debate that's been going on for about 20 years around molecular testing and laboratory-developed tests, where uh, people plugged in the Coke machine and they still make changes, <laughs> you know, uh, following that. And, and the regulatory framework for that is uh, one that has not completely been ironed out. Yeah, the problem is that the, 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 for LDTs, they weren't able to put in the screws that are in the... How many people have ever been able to open up their iPhone to try to fix it? Oh, See, boy. Oh, there's always one in the crowd. IPhone, not there's Android. always one in the crowd. Um, but the point is that, yeah, I think the, 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 the point is well taken, that if, if you get to that point, you're going to want to have you're going to have screws that are in the Apple phone that you've not accessible. Um, uh, and, and, and it's a very good point. Um, the, the thing that, that makes the key, thing that keeps me up about the decentralized model where you don't have a central uh, since someone centrally in, in charge, is that it could devolve into our current state of how many people have heard of stem cell therapies? How many people were on an airplane coming here and were leafing through an airplane magazine and saw you can get stem cells to fix your arthritis, aging, um, Alzheimer's, uh, bad memory, uh, you know, whatever you'd like. Um, uh, actually, uh, this morning, I, I, have, I kid you not, there is a, I, I get these kind of alerts. Someone is selling, uh, I say I, I the word, but there is currently a, 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 a virus spreading rapidly, and someone's already selling uh, stem cells for that particular virus. <laughs> um, so it's, it's out there. Um, we want to take two quick questions. Go ahead. Well, I, I actually, you answered the question. I stood up to say, we learned about this from stem cells, didn't we? Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, yes. this is yes. a catastrophe this is, in waiting. This is, this is a, this, I think the issue is if we, let, if we let people buy these machines and just use them, there, we are at least in the United States where the dollar is, you know, someone is going to even, someone's going to just say, I have a discount, bargain basement discount. You don't need to worry about whether you have insurance or not. I have bargain basement discount car tees. Come see me. Um, that's the worry here. So, yes, you're right well, I, on target. I, you know, I mean, the problem is, is ultimately going to be a little bit ethical. If, if you, you know, I, I get Penn, I get Mass General, I work there. Um, but, you know, if you start going across all of the, start advertising this, yeah. um, and they are controlling their own statements about their own ORRs, we're in stem cells. Yeah, so yeah. you can't hire fast enough to control this. Yeah, no, no, you're, and you are so right. Want to go well, to the one last question there? Just, the FDA is marvelous. They're very sweet. Thank you. That, wow, I need to hear that more often. I, gotta, I don't know how much I had to pay them, but I'll find out. <laughs> go ahead. Um, this question is probably more for the future. Say we have 10 slightly near T cells for t 10 different alleles. 
because people have different actually alleles, do we need to run 10 phase three clinical trials for the same product? So I think the answer is it will depend on exactly the, what, you know, I think you'll probably have to run 10 trials of some sort, but the question is will they look like the phase three trials look currently, or could they look different based on a Bayesian adaptive type design? And, and we're really talking about that. That's actually one of the things that will be discussed a little bit at this individualized therapies. This is, it's, it's a really good question, um, and, and the, if you, particularly for therapies that have large effect sizes, do we need to reinvent the wheel every time? I don't have the definitive answer, but I think it's a really good discussion to have. With that, thank you for listening to us, and uh, we look forward to it. Thank you for the panelists here. I hope you enjoyed the podcast from the IO360 2020 conference. The next IO360 meeting will take place virtually February 23rd through 26, 2021. For more information, visit www.io360summit.com.